Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodeschicago.com. Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, Let me pray for us one more time. Uh, God, we thank you so much for today. Uh, We thank you for your mercies being new every morning, uh, that you meet us again and again, um, even when we grow despondent or cold um, or our fire is not burning hot, you come and um, reignite us. So God, I pray that you would do that this morning, uh, that you would reignite our uh, passion for you, uh, that you would reignite a sense of... um, uh, just a, 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 I guess, urgency is the word I'm looking for, uh, to follow you, to love you, to um, be with you. Um, yeah, God, re- recommit in us, um, those who follow Jesus, a sense of, of following you and um, reignite uh, the ways of old in which we, we loved you. And so, God, would you stir us? We pray that you would um, move in us, uh, that your power would ma- be made manifest here. And if you would, just take a moment um, of silence and ask God to speak to you yourself. Would you, in your heart and head, just say, God, speak to me. Well, God, we love you, and um, this is your time to do what you want. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Welcome, welcome. To Missio Day, Lincoln Square. Um, just one quick announcement that we forgot uh, earlier. Uh, there is a partner meeting um, immediately after service. If you are a partner or if you just call this church your home, we invite you to stay. Once a year, uh, our partners look over the budget and vote on the budget to approve the budget. 
Um, so we're going to be talking about finances. Yay! Um, and so, uh, but if you're not a partner, you're invited to stay. But also, we're not. A, we're going to give you a moment to dismiss. Um, but we're not going to do a little break. We're just going to roll right into the meeting and dismiss anyone who wants to go. And then at 12, if you have kids, you can get your kids at 12 as usual. Cool? All right. little housekeeping note. Uh, so uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark, uh, and we are uh, moving through this book throughout the summer. Uh, and today what I want to do is I want to just kind of give you a broad stroke of Mark chapter 1, 2, and even 3, uh, and kind of give you the overarching feel of the narrative, because this book was meant to be writ, read in, in one, you could go home and read it, and it'd probably take you an hour, um, and yeah, you'd read the Gospel of Mark. Um, but I encourage you to even, like, even if you just go home and read Mark 1 and 2, it'll take you five minutes, um, would love for you just to engage with this book over the summer, that's what we're calling our people to do. Um, and we just want to study the book, learn what it says, and, and, and learn from it. And so uh, today I want to kind of talk to you about uh, Jesus' identity crisis. Um, no, not like his identity crisis, but the kind of the identity crisis that he uh, has in our culture in which he plays. Um, uh, I love this quote by an atheist who wrote a memoir, beautiful memoir. He's a writer, Julian Barnes, and he opens his memoir this way. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Just let that sit in for a moment. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And I think that that's a, a general, like, perfect phrase for um, our cultural, like, uh, experience with God and at large. Like, if, uh, a great phrase to kind of culminate, like a, like a synthesis of what our city may feel about God. Like, I don't believe in God, but the idea of God, and there's aspects of God, and there's pieces of him that I really like, uh, and I miss that, and I want that, and I long for that, but I don't believe in God. Does that make sense? Um, is that, does that resonate with anybody in the room, a few people? Uh, so I think uh, in our culture, we talk a lot about uh, religion. We talk a lot about churches. We talk a lot about in the news, about the Bible. There's a lot in the news about Christianity. There's a lot about evangelicals. But it seems like less and less are talking about Jesus himself. Um, you know, I uh, appreciate the easy reference. There'll be a couple of rap references to Jesus in the sermon. Um, but, you know, there's a few, like, times where Jesus gets mentioned. It's usually, like, we'll go old school, like, Kesha has Jesus on her necklace. You know, you've got, like, um, you know, Katy Perry has the tattoo of Jesus on her wrist. Or you got these references to Jesus culturally. Um, there's general feelings about Jesus. Everyone, though, like, with Jesus has this um, idea of Jesus that really just comes from a feeling of what they want Jesus to be like, and then that's kind of their version of Jesus, right? Um, and so we've, we've, we really don't, little people know about his actual life and what he said, and that's why it's so important to go through this book. And today, I just want you to see three things. Don't you see the first impressions of Jesus' ministry when he started? What were the first impressions of Jesus? Second, how does he, he's going to self-identify himself with who he is and who he says he is, and then I just want to look at some implications um, and so it, for most of us, like I said, Jesus is kind of like this fill in the blank, whatever we want him to be uh, moment. And it's a Jesus of our own making often. But I want to tell you that the Jesus of this Bible is worthy to be considered. And when you consider him, I want you to know that he is controversial. He is very controversial. He's a controversial Jesus. Uh, his birth was controversial. He was unwed to a teenage mother who had to flee uh, and they fled for political, as a, he fled as a political refugee as uh, he was sought to be killed as a baby. Uh, his teaching was controversial. We saw, like, who is this man, a new teaching, who teaches with authority? 
His death was controversial. His resurrection was controversial. And to talk about Jesus today is to invite controversy. If you're going to talk about Jesus, you are inviting controversy into your life. He had a controversial kingdom that was defined by radical enemy love, a love that in which he forgave those on the cross who crucified him. He had controversial claims to be the son of God. He had controversial relationships in which he let women uh, wash his feet with their hair, in which a Jewish man at that time would not be allowed to have public contact with a woman. He had controversial conflict with opponents. He argued with religious leaders. He had controversial grace that you couldn't earn it, his love, but it had to be received. He had controversial ethics about sexuality and generosity and justice, and he had miracles that were controversial that claiming to be the Son of God, the power of the kingdom of the future age, that he would heal here and now and bring heaven to earth. He had demands that were very controversial. Your whole life, devote it to me, follow me, take up your cross and follow me, leave your mother and father and follow me. These great controversial demands. And so you don't enter in a relationship on his terms, he would say. All that to say that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus today, and your life does not have any form of controversy, um, I would propose to you and myself as a wake-up call that it may be that we are worshiping or following a Jesus in our own making, um, that we are, we are following a Jesus. And so today I want to talk about what does it mean to follow a controversial Jesus? And what does it mean to be controversial followers of him in his image? So we have to ask the question, which Jesus are we following? So we want to strip him today of the controversy, and just have a relationship with him on our terms often, right? Like, we want him to kind of be this, like, inception of our own making, and then that kind of Jesus, you can't really have a deep relationship with God. Um, Tim Keller says this, uh, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And Lamont, I love this one, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Um, and I think we, we kind of are, I was thinking about this, we are guilty, we, even the Christian industry uh, plays on this, right? We have a study Bible for everything. I just saw the Tim Tebow study Bible. I mean, like, if you, whatever, whoever you are, you could get a study Bible for you got the men's study Bible, the men's promise keepers conference. You got the women's study Bible, the young single adult study Bible, right? The old single adult study Bible. <laughs> You've got a study Bible for everything, and you just got your moment. Uh, you, 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 that way, you have the career-driven study Bible, uh, the purpose-driven study Bible, right? The mystic Bible. Like, we have study Bibles for whoever you are. You can craft it however you want. Uh, really, we're just living in the spirit of the age of Thomas Jefferson, right? Like, this is a picture of Thomas Jefferson's Bible, in which he, as you know, cut out sections of the Gospels that he didn't like. And he said that this was the perfect theology of Jesus. He called it diamonds in the dunghill. And if he were to listen to the Jesus today, I think Jesus would say, hey, put those verses back in the Bible, but that's what he would say today. Let's get a little Pentecostal today and turn to your neighbor and say, put those verses back in the Bible. Go ahead. Let's do it. <laughs> now turn to your other neighbor and say, put those verses back in the Bible. I'm fun and cheeky, but it's fun. I, I don't know why I did that, but. 
Uh, oh, goodness. So Jesus must somewhat, when you follow him, there's a little bit of sense where we, uh, our culture, uh, he, he's got to a little bit of confront you or disturb you or overthrow you, all these words that sound horrible to us. But if you're really following Jesus, there's going to be a moment in your life where he disturbs you. And so I want us to look at Jesus and look at these first impressions and see what it means to follow him. So we have to ask this question, who exactly is the Lord of the church? Like, who is the Lord of us? When Jesus' way of discipleship is thinned down, like, we lose our antibodies against the, 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 the powers and forces of the world. And the truth and reality is the world is doing a much better job of making disciples of Jesus than the church is. I mean, I'm sorry, the world is making a, doing a better job of making disciples of the world, excuse me, than the church is of making disciples of Jesus. Let me rephrase that. What I mean by that is we've, we've basically, we've, normal, we've used societal structures to discipline us. Uh, so if you fall out of those norms, you will be punished. If you fall in, you'll be uh, rewarded. Uh, and when we live in line, um, when we, 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 our society establishes a norm that if you behave in the way that society wants you to, um, you'll be rewarded or you'll be shamed and disciplined by social media if you don't. You'll be disciplined by others. You'll be disciplined to be normalized. And the way culture shapes us is through stories and institutions and practices and values and rewards and online shaming. And so we we basically now, the problem with all that, and some of that could be good and course correcting if it matches up with the kingdom of God, yes and amen. But really, the reality is, now how do you be a follower of Jesus in that culture? The only way to be a follower of Jesus in that culture is to say, I will follow Jesus even when it causes me to be punished by society. I will follow Jesus even if it causes me to be shamed online. So there's a sense of where this goes against all of our ways. Now, there's a way to be controversial that doesn't match the way of Jesus. Burning the Quran on TV, not so much. Controversial, yes. Following Jesus, no right? Uh, you know, using the Bible to make your political stance and opinion, maybe not the way of Jesus. Um, controversial, yes. You see what I'm saying? So that's, we're not going to be able to even to dig into that today, but I just want just you to see this passage and dive through. So first impressions. Bam taught last week about the disciples following Jesus. Uh, Jesus called them. Uh, he, he taught how Jesus went to these young men, these, these Teenage boys on a boat said, hey, come follow me, and they dropped their nets and their vocation and followed him. Now, you're probably saying, Brian, now, wasn't that kind of like a normal thing for rabbis? And then, no, like, you didn't leave your whole career to follow a rabbi then. Secondly, you didn't, uh, or no one, rabbis didn't come and call young people to follow and to learn under them. You pick, you ask the rabbi, can I follow you? It's kind of like the way we pick profs. No professors are going to you and be like, can I be in your, can, can you be in my class, please? Like, no, you go and you pick the prof. Same way, but Jesus flips it on his head and chooses them, pursues them, and says, come follow me. And I say, see you, dad, ditch the nets. We're going to go follow this guy. We're leaving our entire career. The next day, we see what unfolds really is like one long day in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus walks into a synagogue and begins teaching. And he's teaching, and we saw in the passage, if you go to the, the verses, it says that he was teaching in a way that was completely like a new authority. It says that they were astonished at his teaching in verse 22, and it was on the Sabbath. So he goes into the most sacred place, the synagogue, at the most sacred time on the Sabbath, 
and begins to teach with a new authority. And it says that he didn't teach as the scribes did. Now, the scribes would teach this way. They would say, hey, they would quote all these other chief interpreters the way we would teach, uh, the way I just did. Hey, Anne Lamont, you know, whatever, quote these people. They would quote these chief interpreters of the rabbinic tradition and say, you've heard it said this. Now, let's think about this. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus would come in and teach this way and says, you've heard it said this, I say this. And they're like, who is this man? Who is this guy who would teach with, it says that literally, uh, he taught with them his authority. And, and, and later on it says, who is this man who teaches with this authority? He comes in with this kind of authoritative teaching and they don't get to really ponder that that long. He's immediately interrupted by a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue and um, Jesus, the exorcist, comes on the scene and does, we're going to get into like demon possession and, you know, demons later on in Mark 5. But for day, today, we see that Jesus looks at him and say, uh, the demon says this, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us, this man that has this unclean spirit? And he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, which is interesting because all throughout the Gospel of Mark, no one knows who Jesus is as the Holy One of God except for the demons. Um, and uh, next slide, Jesus says to him this, Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent, come out of him, and he came out immediately. Now, back then, exorcisms were normal. This was like, you can read uh, literature outside the Bible, there was like an uptick of literature about uh, uh, casting out demons, like all throughout the region. Um, it's, it's really fascinating, actually. Um, so this was common, but the way it was done is there was a sense, there was a method to the madness. There was a sense of... Um, uh, there was a calling, there was a kind of this uh, calling out moment, um, a call to be silent and a call to come out. So the call to be silent, they would call upon a higher power, uh, and then there was a call to come out, which was usually involved with some incantations, symbolic methods, symbols, um, and then, but Jesus does none of that. Jesus says, hey, you, shut up, leave, and he, the demon leaves. And so Jesus is like, if Jesus was like an exorcist movie, it would be like a very boring movie, right? Because it would just be like, Jesus would be like, enough, done, credits roll, right? <laughs> and it would be over, no like, oh, the Christ of, power of Christ compels you and all that stuff. So Jesus comes in and they're amazed. They're, they, it blows their mind. By, by the way, a little side note, um, I, I just noticed this this week. It says, what, the demon said, what do you have to do with us? Did you notice that he's in the synagogue? Um, and he's just one person. Now, other passages, sometimes demons do talk in plural. That's not what this passage says. It makes me wonder, what if Mark is trying to show that there's demons that are getting connected to the religious institutions of the day, and that there's demonic power even within the religious institutions that we must be aware of and mindful of? Um, you won't really get that from a lot of churches, but just, hey, nobody, it's, we all are here for discernment. So, don't listen to me. I mean, listen to this thing. All right, so, uh, so when he's saying us, he could be referring to the fact that these religious leaders, that Jesus is coming and stirring a controversy. Remember that. He's not just like, I'm going to go to synagogue today. He's coming in, teaching with authority, casting out demons, creating conflict on purpose uh, to create a controversy to show what about his identity. So uh, this happens the next day. He, uh, sorry, the same day, he goes in, sees Simon Peter, goes back to get a little siesta, sees Simon, Simon's uh, mother-in-law sick with a fever, uh, looks at her, takes the fever, lifts her up, heals her, allows her to continue on with her responsibilities. And now you're probably thinking, like, fever, no big deal. But no, at this time, a fever was a big deal. Like, you could die from a fever. 
uh, Jesus comes in and just says, fever, be gone. Who does this? Who does this? He has power over the unseen world. Now he has power over the physical world. He talks to the physical world and commands it to do something, and it does? Who talks like that? He, he looks at this spiritual entity and commands it to leave, and it does? Who talks like that? Jesus does. So he's going to come in with this new kind of authority, who possesses this kind of authority? Who can do this? And so this is, notice the first impressions. This is what I want you to get. The first impressions of Jesus throughout this was, who is this man who has this kind of authority? The first impression with Jesus is power. Power, that he has authority over the world, that he has power to do what is unthinkable. And so when you think about Jesus, what comes to mind, is it power overall? Is it that he has power over all when you think of him? No, he, and, and so now he is, um, next chapter, he's going to come in and create even more conflict and opposition on purpose. And they put him in these boxes that they're really comfortable with. The first group, we didn't read it, but actually all these people begin to experience his healing ministry. Uh, and then it says the whole crowd, the whole town was coming out, bringing their sick people. Hey, will you heal my sick grandma? Will you heal my granddad? Can I get $5? Like, they were just all coming out to him, and, like, they wanted to put Jesus in, like, the will you fix me box. That Jesus, the Jesus they put him in was like, hey, you are the healer. Help me with my problems, Jesus. That's the Jesus that you are. Like, you're the one who's, who's, who's here to just kind of, I got a problem, I need you to fix it. The problem with that is that when we put that in a box, that's great for some people, but other people, have you ever heard this? Yeah, that's the whole reason I don't worship Jesus, because I'm actually okay, I don't have any problems. You worship Jesus because you've got problems, and you worship Jesus because you kind of need him for that. But for me, I'm actually doing pretty good. I don't really need any problems, so I don't need Jesus. And so we, they put him in this, Jesus, this box, and Jesus doesn't let them put him in the box. The next, it says that uh, Peter came to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, like, there's whole crowds out here waiting for you to be healed. What's going on? And he's like, I have other things to do. I'm going on, and I'm going to be teaching. And he's going to go in and teach with authority. And some of you are thinking, oh, you're going to put him in that box then, huh? The teacher guy? The guy who's going to be like, let me tell you what to do, Jesus? No, he's not going to let you put him in that box either. And the whole next cha two chapters, there's going to be five different things that he's going to say, like, here's who I am, and you, I don't fit in your box. And so the next Chapter, chapter 2, he's going to go and there's going to be a paralyzed man. Uh, he is in uh, a small house, a tiny house, and there's a crowd around it uh, following Jesus because Jesus is teaching and there's everybody there for the healing. And no one can get to the paralyzed man, so the friends bust open the, the roof of the house, go down and get the man, as you do whenever your friend is paralyzed in the middle of a tiny house. And, and Jesus comes in and, and, he, and he, he says, can you heal this man? The friends say, please heal our friend. And Jesus pauses for a moment and gets time out. Um, actually, paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And you're like, what? He's like, yeah, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes are in the background calling time, like throwing flags. They're angry. They're like, no one can do that. Who can you, why can't, why, how can you say your sins are forgiven? You can't do that. Only God can do that. Which you think about it is a radical statement to say your sins are forgiven. Like, for example, like if you guys were in like a fight and like she hurt your feelings and I just came up to you and said, I forgive you. And you'd be like, what? You're a third party. Who are you? Like, what are, 
why would you, like, we're the ones who have the tension. Like, you're no, who are you, why are you doing this? Or if I looked at this whole crowd and I said, every single thing that this side of the room has done wrong, I absolve you of all your wrongs. Like, you'd be like, who, who talks like that? Exactly. Jesus does. He talks like this because he's saying, I, as the Son of God, have the power to forgive sin. I have the power to forgive. Now, he then looks at the scribes. He did it says that he knew what was in their heart, and he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? And they were about as quiet as we are because it's a complicated question. It depends. Like, one, taking up your mat, healing the guy, it's, it's verifiable. You see the power right then. Sins are forgiven. It's unverifiable, but it's an unseen spiritual reality, and Jesus is matching it with this seen reality, and he's saying, I'm going to do this. He, then he looks at the guy and says, take up your mat and walk and your sins are forgiven. So what Jesus is doing, he says, I'm going to do the seen thing so you'll know I have power over the unseen thing. I have power to forgive sins. You, I have power to heal. I have power to, to over the, the, the physical bodies of this world. I have power that you don't know about. And so he is coming with, he's saying, I'm not going to let you put me in this box. I am the healer. I am the one with authority. And um, as he does this, uh, he's going to keep moving on, and he runs into Matthew, the tax collector. And Matthew, the tax collector, is this, known as a sinner, the social outcast. And the scribes are like, hey, wait a minute, you're a religious person, you can't be eating with him. And he goes, oh, well, I do. And he goes, because I'm the phys- physician. They're like, what? Yeah, yeah, I'm the physician. Because his sin is a sickness, and I'm the one who can make him whole again. And they're like, what? And he goes, yeah, and by the way, and he's just going to keep going and going. He's like, he says, oh, by the way, he tells this parable about the old wineskins. And he says, you can't take a new wineskin and put a patch over the old wineskin. He goes, you need a whole new wineskin. You see what he's doing? He's saying, this is your box that you're trying to put me in, and I don't fit. I don't fit your box. I'm the new wineskin. And then he's going to go on and teach more, and they're going like, hey, you, your disciples don't fast. John's disciples fasted. Your disciples don't fast. Shouldn't they be fasting? Now, Jesus could at that moment said, well, yes, there's an important time to fast, and now's not the time. And this is... He doesn't do that. He goes, the bridegroom is here. That's why they don't fast. They're like, what? He goes, yeah, there's a party, and I'm the party. <laughs> they're like, What? Who talks like that? Now, you got to know that is a wildly offensive thing to say. Because in Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all call who the bridegroom of Israel? Yahweh. Not even the Messiah. Yahweh. He says, that's the only reference to the bridegroom of Israel. He goes, the bridegroom is here. This is a party. They don't fast because they're rejoicing because I'm here. You, I don't fit in your box. And then Sabbath comes, and he's walking around his disciples, and they're picking grain, and they're eating grain. And they go, whoa, 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 you can't harvest on the Sabbath. Now, he could have said, you know, that's not technically harvesting. You're actually being a bad interpreter of the law. He could have said that and been totally fine, but he doesn't do this. He goes, he tells them a parable in the Old Testament, and then he, uh, basically it says that, hey, your hearts are off. That's the interpretation of the parable. You, you read it, read the story. But then he says this. He says, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That was completely unnecessary. 
Like, he could have just said, hey, uh, this is the way you should interpret it. But then he goes, you know what? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who brings the rest. And so Jesus is consistently creating controversy and showing us that I don't fit in your little boxes. I'm identifying myself. This is who I am. I'm the one who heals. I'm the one that comes and teaches with authority that corrects. I'm the one who, who can forgive sins. I'm the one who brings rest. I am the one who eats with outcasts. There is no unclean with me. And he says, come to me, and I will give you rest. I will give you good news. I will lift your burdens. I will be your God and your guide. Jesus is worth following. Now, so, and, and so back to the kind of the first box, that kind of like fix everything box. Um, I feel like in church often we have to tell people that Jesus is like, we, we often try, communicators like me are like, Jesus is going to fix all your problems. And then you follow him and he doesn't. And you're like, what a minute. What happened? Like that preacher guy said he was going to do all this. And no, Jesus doesn't fix all your problems when you start following him, but it will be worth it when you follow him. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. Uh, I always knew a bottle of port would do that. Thanks, C.S., for keeping it real. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And so C.S. Lewis would say, I was the most reluctant convert of England. He says, I came into the kingdom kicking and screaming. And he wrote a biography, and his biography was called Surprised by Joy. And that's what Jesus as king is doing. Remember the, a couple of weeks ago, he is bringing the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel is the, the message of joy of the king that his kingship is one of joy. And my prayer for you is that you would be surprised by the authoritative joy that comes with God and that, that you would know him and follow him. Now, so what for us? What do we, how do we walk away with this? I just want to ask two questions in one statement, um, and then we're done. Um, first question is this. How have we made God in our own image? How have you made God in your own image? Have you reduced him into a cheerleader? Have you reduced him into a problem solver, a mate? Um, I pray that you, that, that you would settle that in your heart this week, um, that you would spend time settling that in your heart, that you would then move out and embrace uh, him for who he is the best way you know how, uh, and, and discern who he is. And I think that's just the problem that I'm consistently seeing in our age. We have so many people that we think are like the chief interpreters of who Jesus is that we are just literally confused. We are so confused of who is the real Jesus anymore because there's so many opinions. It's like going to the cereal aisle at Mariano's. Like, oh my gosh, gluten-free Jesus, vegan Jesus, gluten-full Jesus, lactose intolerant, yeah, I don't know. But it's like this, like all these different ways of seeing Jesus and we're just confused as to who he is. And so... I pray that you would just say, how have I made Jesus in my own image? And how do I follow the one that I think is revealed in Scripture? And settle that in your own heart. And then secondly, ask yourself this, is I think that what Jesus is doing here in this confrontation is it's a public ministry. And so how have we, out of fear of rejection, cut Jesus out of our public life? Like, how have we cut him out of the public life? Because Jesus is like moving in and saying, I'm running this thing here. I have authority. And he's like making this issue very public of who he is and his identity. 
And the issue is, is if we have the audacity to go in and yoke up with his identity and make it known, knowing that, he, knowing that we are going to be rejected, that we're going to experience rejection. Um, I love what Bob Sorge says this. It says, those who fear the rejection of man have a deep yearning for the praise of man. This isn't up there. Um, and set their souls up for repetitive heartache. Let me read that again. Those who fear the rejection of man have a deep yearning for the praise of man and set their souls up for repetitive heartache. Their response to that pain is expressed in anger. That's why the scriptures say the fear of man brings a snare. As long as you're seeking the acceptance of man, you are making yourself vulnerable to the rejection of man. If man's acceptance will build you up, man's rejection will devastate you. And we all have experienced rejection. Studies show that it's the same emotional pain as a physical pain. Um, the MRIs will show that. Uh, and we've all know what it's like to look for acceptance and not receive it. I don't like being rejected. I don't like people thinking I'm weird. Um, I remember like early on um, in middle school, uh, I remember, uh, well, I was little, all the old church ladies would come and grab my cheeks, my, big, my cheeks, I was a little kid with big cheeks. And then I remember in middle school, this girl passing me a note and says, you have big cheeks. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what cheeks he's talking about, but... No, seriously, it was like a moment of like, like that haunted me for the rest of my life. Like, no, like, will you go out with me, check yes or no, just, you have big cheeks, just wanted to tell you that. So the rest of my life, I walk around like this. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't got big cheeks. So I just suck in my cheeks everywhere I go because I was self-conscious about my cheeks. So we all know what it's like to be rejected. We all know what it's like. We spend lots of money getting therapy to help us with our rejection. If you move to Chicago and you're an actor, you have audition after audition, and you, this is harder than you thought, and you don't know how to deal with the rejection. Job interviews. Job interviews are essentially, it's called preparing for rejection. Dating in Chicago. That's like a culture of rejection. Like, just continually being rejected. And even older people deal with rejection. You have 50-year-olds who are filled with wisdom, and then they may have a 27-year-old fire you and feeling rejected. Every, all of us, all of us experience the fear of rejection. The deal is, is as followers of Jesus, we have to live with what Jesus did is before all this, he had a deep sense of his father's acceptance. He had such a deep sense that you are my beloved son, I'm well pleased with you. That he went out being controversial because it didn't matter because he had the father's acceptance. And if you don't have the father's acceptance in your life, if you're not experiencing God's acceptance of who you are, you are not free to take risk. You are not free to listen to your critics. You are not free to go out and create a kingdom ethic and a kingdom community because you're living in the fear of another. But when you have the Father's acceptance, you can go out and be the child of God he made you to be. And so I pray that we would move out knowing that we have no fear. And lastly, this king, um, I want to just encourage you in this, Monsieur, this truth. We are the ones that the king has fought for. We are the ones the king has fought for. All these people, we kind of looked at more of the like, authority of Jesus, but these are real people that he's ministering to, the real people that he is fighting for, real people that are on the margins, real people that have struggles and issues. And you know how to fight when you know who has fought for you. And if you're going to fight these behavioral patterns in your life, that you just can't get free from. Yes, you may not be a paralyzed man and you have the freedom of your limbs, but you don't have the freedom of the things that own you in the middle of the night. 
And if God's going to bring freedom to you, you have to know that he has already fought for you. You look at children. Who are the children that are most resilient? They're the ones who know that there's been a parent who's fought for them and protected them. We know statistically that those people have a stronger chance of, of making it in life. And look at the, this is a bad illustration, but the Spartans, a lot of bad things they did. But one thing they did, why did they fight so strongly? Because their king didn't sit back in a high tower and say, go fight, minions. The king went out first and fought. And because he was so audacious in fighting, they said, I'm going to fight. And so you have a king who has fought for your freedom. He has come to set you free. He has come to heal you. He has come to meet you. And he has come to course correct your way to a way of freedom. And he's come to bring the social outcasts in. And so he has fought for you. And because of that, you can fight those destructive behavioral patterns. You can fight and become a warrior. You are not a victim. You are a victor in Jesus' name. Because he is one who is not giving you a list of rules to follow. He is not a list maker. He is a liberator. And he is a king worth following. And so my question with that is at the end of this chapter, there's two responses. There's a crowd that's following him, and there's a religious group that's ready to kill him. And when it comes to Jesus, there isn't any mild amusement. There's either, I want you dead, or I want to follow you. Those are your choices. And Jesus says, hey, like the mild amusement thing that we've created in America, it's not really a response. Indifference is not a response here. Like you either like follow me or you don't really want to have anything to do with me. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going away that leads to life and life abundantly. And I hope you want it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.